thank you for this opportunity to study your word. I thank you for the truths that are in it. And Lord, we need you to take your word and apply it to our hearts as only your Holy Spirit can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how to stop a church gossip. Mildred, the church gossip and self-appointed monitor of the church's morals, kept sticking her nose in everybody else's business. Several members did not approve of her activities, but they actually feared her enough to keep quiet. She made a mistake, however, when she accused Frank, a new member, of being an alcoholic after she saw his old pickup parked in front of the town's only bar one afternoon. She emphatically told Frank and many other people uh, that everyone seeing it there, would, they would know what he was doing. Frank, a man of few words, just stared at her for a moment and turned and walked away, didn't defend or explain himself. But later that evening, Frank quietly parked his pickup truck in front of Mildred's house and walked home and left it there all night. So, yeah, well, it's sad to say if you've ever had the experience of being misrepresented to others or outright lied about, you know how hard that is to, to deal with. People can make up lies about you or try to defame your character and have no basis in what they've said, just like Mildred. Uh, this certainly was the experience of the Apostle Paul as he carried on his service for Jesus uh, to do the work God called him to do. There is an enemy of the gospel, and that is Satan, who continues to do his work of twisting scripture, polluting scripture, and falsely accusing believers to other believers as well as to the world. In Paul's day, just as in our day, there were countless false spiritual leaders. And those who were in the ministry simply, or some type of religious work, simply to gain financially. They were swindlers, or they just wanted to have some kind of power and influence over other people. Paul had carried on his ministry as a true apostle of Jesus, but the enemies of the gospel tried to influence people and accuse him and his co-workers of being nothing but frauds and in it just for the money. Well, Paul was anything but a swindler, but found out, uh, but found that he was in a position of having to defend himself for these lies being said about him. So this is why Paul now has to clarify to this church the truth about himself and his ministry. How sad it was that he was even forced to have to talk about this at all. Satan always wants to undermine truth being taught, and he attacks the message, and he often attacks the messenger as well. So in chapter 2, Paul highlights the kind of qualities that a spiritual leader ought to have then, as unpleasant as it had to have been, he was put in this position to defend himself. So how did Paul behave during his time when he got to Thessalonica anyways? Well, let's look at the qualities that he really displayed. He was a man who served God. Verse 1 says, For you know, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Paul begins his defense by reminding them of what it was like when he first came to them with the gospel message. When the team got there and uh, began the work, uh, this, the message they proclaimed to them was not empty or vain, quite the opposite. There was incredible power as the impact of their message changed the lives of those who believed. Verse 2 says, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. That idea of the word opposition is struggle and conflict. 
Paul and his companions had suffered and been mistreated, put in stocks, falsely accused, and illegally punished when they were in Philippi. So there was a physical attack as well as being disgraced when they had done absolutely nothing wrong of what their accusers said they did. And even after this horrific incident, Paul continued to proclaim the truth of the gospel when he arrived at Thessalonica. I think I would have said, I need a break. I need a little recovery emotionally and physically from the ordeal. But Paul and his companions just jumped into the next town, knowing controversy would follow and struggles would follow. So in defending himself, Paul is saying to them, it's ridiculous for critics to say that they had been self-seeking mercenaries in it for the money. Rather, they had courage to still go out and proclaim this gospel message boldly, even in the midst of incredible persecution. He never came to them for personal gain. The truth is, Paul came with a message from God, and he delivered it under much opposition and conflict and struggle. Verse 3 and 4, for our exhortation... Am I clicking? (laughs) It's my earring. Oh, I'm sorry. I hear this click, click, click. It's enough distractions listening without that. Is that better? Okay. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Clearly, Paul's critics said, must have said that he was teaching heresy. And Paul assures them that there was nothing false about what he taught them, there was no error in the message he brought. There was nothing impure or unclean about it either. God had entrusted this message to these men, and they were simply stewards to bring it to others. So many mystery religions of Paul's day were cults that involved sexual perversion, and it was not unusual for false religious leaders then to take advantage of others sexually under the guise of this being some religious right or experience. Can you imagine that they'd even accuse Paul of such kind of behavior? He says, neither was there any deceit, literally a trap or a trick, in order to gain money. The message Paul brought to them was the truth. There was no impurity in his ministry. There was no deception either. Think of all the cults and false religious leaders today. I mean, all you got to do is put on your TV or radio, and wow, you can hear one after the other. And there are messages that lure people by men who want power, who want control, who want your money, just send me your money, and you'll get wealthy, and you'll get well. And then messages about sexual freedom or sexual perversion being accepted and and fine with us because we love all in our group. Well, Paul states in verse 4 that the message he brought to them was approved by God And Paul was entrusted to share it with them. Paul worked hard knowing he was indeed called by God to bring the message of the gospel and to write letters inspired by the Spirit. He was not some self-appointed fraudulent leader or teacher. The result of God's call on his life meant Paul spoke to please God, not people. What mattered the most to Paul was pleasing the Lord because that's who he was accountable to. God is the one who scrutinizes a person's heart. And the passions of Paul uh, were all about honoring his Lord. He knew his Lord looked straight into his heart. He believed God entrusted the truth to him to be shared with these other people. If a person is concerned about what other people think of them, they then become people pleasers. 
and drift away from being a God pleaser. Paul is encouraging these believers to look honestly at his motives, at his true heart. He had come to them for one reason alone, to please his God by sharing the truth of the message of the, the gospel message of salvation. Not only that, but Paul challenges them further in verse 5, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Paul has already defended the charges against him of being self-serving or a man-pleaser, and now he addresses the accusation of being authoritarian. Paul never flattered them in order to get something from them. And how many people use that technique? Say what people want to hear and then ask them for what you want. That is not what Paul did. He never secretly had greedy intentions to get personal gain. In verse 6, he makes it clear that he never sought esteem or praise from men. His motivation was to please the Lord. Paul certainly had the authority as an apostle, but he never used that wrongly and asserted it in making men uh, do what things that was for personal favor for him. Nor did the men who came with him. Uh, they were all of the same mind and heart. Paul was accountable and had a humble heart. He knew God sees right through, so he was careful to see, not seek praise from men, but he answered to the Lord for what he did. Paul illustrates his sacrifice as being similar to that of a mother. And if you are a mother here, you can relate. Verse 7, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So Paul begins this section with, but, in order to contrast the behavior of what he had just been talking about, false teachers, instead of being harsh, abusive, deceitful, Paul was gentle among them. This word has the idea of compassion and respect and loyal and being tender-hearted. He compares his gentleness to how a nursing mother is so tender and how she cares for her child. His feelings for these believers were very similar to those feelings of a nursing mother for her baby. Like a nursing mother, Paul was willing to give of himself, sacrifice for them, miss sleep for them, do whatever he could to meet their need. Not only had Paul and his fellow workers shared the gospel message with them, in reality, they had shared their very lives with them. And he cherished them, and he, he wanted to protect them. Here was a spiritual leader willing to give of himself and sacrifice for the well-being of the people he served. In verse 9, Paul reminds them he didn't come to them to be financially supported. He cared about them as people. There was no greed behind his preaching. He didn't even let them give him money. Labor and hardship summarized his ministry. A nursing mother doesn't expect to pay back from her child for nursing them. But Paul did have the right, biblically speaking, to be given money for the work that he did on their behalf. But he refused to use that. Instead, he worked day and night, had a job, supporting his men so that the people he was ministering to didn't have to give any of their money for the work to go on. He was a burden to no one. What an example Paul set for these new believers as he lovingly cared for their well-being and their spiritual growth. 
Reminding them of this should have brought any thoughts about Paul having wrong motives to an end. Not only was he like a loving, nursing mother, he was also like an encouraging, exhorting father. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children, so that you walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. It's clear in common sense that a father should lead by example, and I realize for many of you, you did not have such a father. But just as in the case of a physical father who is doing the job he is called to do, so it is true in the spiritual realm. Paul reminds them that they had firsthand knowledge of Paul's ministry, of his integrity, of his godly lifestyle lived before them. They had been exemplary leaders dealing with them in a God-honoring way at all times. They were role models who set a standard for these new believers. Follow us as we follow Christ. Just like a physical father is to care for his own children and their well-being, that's how Paul cared for them. He had taken the time to instruct them in the truth so that they were prepared for life, prepared for things that were coming. By exhorting them, it has the idea of one who comes alongside to, to guide, to help, to instruct. He also encouraged them by bringing them comfort when they faced obstacles in their lives. The thought here is that he had a tenderness of encouraging those who were downcast and struggling. Just as a physical father is to be loving and kind to his own children, so should it be in the case of a spiritual father and leader. So Paul had implored each one and testified to them to walk in obedience so spiritual discipline would never be necessary in their lives. So the goal that Paul had is the same goal that each of us should have, that we walk in a manner worthy of God who's called us. In other words, you know, walk means your daily activity, how you, your behavior uh, what you do in your everyday life, growing in obedience to the word of God. Fathers want to be proud of their children, and spiritual fathers want God the Father to be glorified through the lives of his children. When we become a child of God through faith in Jesus and trust him to be our Lord and Savior, that his death on the cross was sacrifice sufficient for our sin, and put our trust in him, we are then to constantly be growing in obedience to his word and in holiness. That should be seen then, ladies, in how we speak to each other, how you speak to the people you live with, how we spend our money, how we serve other people, how we forgive, how we worship, how we esteem others more important than ourselves. This body of believers had been nurtured in their faith so that they grew and they matured in a very quick time. And that is certainly the goal in the life of a physical child born into a family that they would grow and develop and become independent and, and functional and fruitful in their life. And so it is that for everyone born into God's family. Every believer has been called by God into his kingdom and glory. And we look forward to experiencing that future glory in God's kingdom yet to come where finally we will share the full glory, spending time in eternity with him. Well, the last section of this uh, chapter. We look at the faithfulness of God's people in suffering. God's word really changed them and equipped them, and that's what God's word does. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. 
So Paul and his team of missionary workers had given the gospel message to a willing and thankful people, and they listened carefully. This wasn't the word of men. It wasn't another philosopher coming through town. They had recognized that this was totally different than anything they'd ever heard before. And it was accepted by the people there as the very word of God. They welcomed the message. You know why? It penetrated their hearts and their minds. They understood what Paul was saying. They understood how desperately sinful and wicked they were and how they were so separated from a holy God. The word of God performed a work in their lives. It's a sharp, double-edged sword and it pierced right through to their souls. God's word changes everything then about a person when they come to faith in him. There's a supernatural work as God works and enlightens somebody to understand the gospel message, to see their need to be saved. But his words then set them apart and help them to grow and to mature. It's his word, ladies, that gives us wisdom. How do we move forward from here? It's his word that counsels us. It's his word that uplifts, gives hope, reveals our sin. It's in the midst of trials and the difficulties of life that we see the amazing power of the word of God as it brings comfort and wisdom and guidance to a broken and hurting heart. The promises become the source of stability as one is grounded by his truth. Human wisdom and teaching could never bring about that kind of result. The impact then on fellow believers. For you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So not only did these believers imitate the Lord and Paul, um, but also suffering Jewish believers in Judea. Those believers who had suffered in Judea were an example to them as well. The radical Jewish leaders had led in attacks to deal harshly with everyone who joined in following Jesus. They most likely had never visited these Jewish believers, but like them, they too were now suffering. Jewish believers in Jesus' day had suffered at the hands of their own fellow Jews, and so too the Thessalonians faced persecution from unbelieving Jews who had influenced Gentiles to help in their persecution. Now, going speaking of the Jewish people, Paul says in verse 15, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, they are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. Paul is simply stating facts of history here. The Bible does not accuse all Jews for what a few Jews did in Jerusalem when Christ was crucified. The Romans were also a part of the trial and the death of Jesus. The truth of the matter is, ladies, it's your sin and it's my sin that sent Jesus to the cross. So there's no place ever for anti-Semitism. The sad truth of Israel's history was that they continually repeated the sins of their fathers. Those who brought the message from God to the people of Israel were his prophets, his spokesmen, and they often killed them for speaking the truth. Clearly this continued so that even when their own Messiah showed up, clearly could have been seen when that was going to happen through the book of Daniel. They, they, they rejected him as well and anyone associated with him and his message they were considered as enemies. Verse 16, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Remember Paul, before his conversion, he was the Pharisee Saul. 
who thought he was pleasing God by trying to imprison all believers, dragging men and women away from their children, sticking them in prison, watching the first martyr be stoned, and he thought he was doing this all for, for the God of Israel. The men who thought like him were hostile to followers of Jesus, hating any religion or teaching that was contrary to what they thought. They had refused the message of the gospel, and they didn't want anyone to hear about it either. Yes, these, uh, the Thessalonians believers were experiencing suffering for their faith. However, what was coming to the Jewish people who followed their religious leaders would be wrath to the utmost. They would just keep heaping up their sins until God would bring judgment. This happened many times in Israel's history. They were taken away in captivity in Assyria, Babylon. The whole city of Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed in 70 A.D., it really is a message to all people, though, not just Jewish people, that there is a day of facing the wrath of God for rejecting God and his very narrow way of salvation. The Jewish leaders of Paul's days had rejected their Messiah, rejected the only way of salvation, so wrath would come upon them to the utmost. You realize the light that these people had. They watched Lazarus call forth from the dead, and their response was, we got to figure out how to kill him. They saw people healed right in front of them. So all of that light of the truth shining right in their faces and their reaction was, he does this because he's satanic. And that's why wrath upon wrath we piled up to the utmost. It will be the full expression of his wrath and they suspend eternity in hell. And such is the case, though, for every future, for every person who rejects Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. It is a very narrow way to enter into a right relationship with the one living true God. We live in a culture that says everybody's God will get you to heaven, and that's just wishful thinking. Jesus made it clear there is no other way but through me. And just as it was in Paul's day, so it is in our day. There are countless voices of those who reject the word of God, reject the message and the narrowness of the salvation message, and they hinder those who try to proclaim its truth. There will be eternal consequences forever for their actions. The Jewish leaders in Paul's days couldn't tolerate that he would proclaim a message of salvation uh, that did not require that the Jewish that people first become Jewish proselytes. I mean, they didn't even believe the gospel message that Paul was preaching. They're really annoyed that he's giving it to Gentiles and saying this is a way to be saved, but you, not saying you have to become Jews first. So it doesn't even make sense. With their violent reaction and desire to persecute believers, they are piling up sin upon sin upon sin. And there are degrees of suffering in hell. And theirs will be intense. Now Paul talks about his great desire as he finishes this section to be reunited with them. But we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit. We're all the more eager to, with a great desire to see your, see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. Yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or our joy or our crown or exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. In these verses, you see the deep affection Paul had for them. And that it was so painful to be separated for them, from them. He wants them to know he's not abandoned them, uh, as some may have said. 
It wasn't just Paul, but Silas and Timothy who all cared so deeply for them. Paul had wanted to stay there longer, but he had been forced away from them. He felt like a parent who had the experience of their child being ripped away by force. Paul may have been forced away by his enemies, but he was with them in spirit, and they were continually with him in his heart, in his thoughts, in his prayers. There is such intense emotion in Paul's words here as he speaks of his eager desire to just want to see their face again. He longed to be reunited with them and have meaningful conversations with them. And contrary to those who lied about Paul saying he was glad to leave, the truth was he desperately wanted to come back. As a matter of fact, he had tried more than once to go to them, but there was an obstacle that Satan kept putting in his way. We don't know what that was that says that Satan hindered him. Satan opposed God in any work that God's interest in kingdoms are about, so he wanted to stop progress in the work of God. The word hindered used here literally means breaking up the road and putting up obstacles. That was something armies did back in the Roman Empire day. Paul doesn't give the specifics of how Satan kept him away. And it may have to do with all that happened back in Acts 17 at Jason's house and a pledge made at that time. We're just not told. But Satan is depicted, as you know in Scripture, as a roaring lion seeking to devour his victims. Each of you. But we are reminded to resist the devil and he will flee. Satan cannot accomplish anything without it being permitted by God in his perfect plan. And what, we may seem, what may seem to us as evil having the victory, evil winning out, I mean, you just look at our world and go, wow. But God is still able to use that for good. I mean, just look at the life of Joseph and all the evil done to him. And he could look back and say, you meant it for evil, but God had a plan. This was all about good. And that's the basis of Romans 8.28, that we know God causes all things, even bad things, to work together for good to those that love him. God's omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning, and we don't. And he has the full picture. And I just remind you, Satan is on a short leash and can't do anything that God doesn't permit him. Paul says in verse 19 that these believers are his glory and his joy. It's interesting that as Paul speaks of the joy in the return of Christ and being with him, there is also a special joy at his coming when he would see all of these believers whom he has shared his life and ministry with. A major part of our joy in heaven will be sharing it with the people who are there because of some part we had in bringing the gospel to them. How amazing it would be to meet people that maybe just said a brief word in a grocery store, had a brief conversation with here, and God down the road brought them to himself. And in heaven, what a reunion. You're the person that got me started thinking. It used by God to plant the seed of truth. Well, for Paul, these believers were the object of his hopes and his joys and his future rewards. These believers that Paul loves so much would be his reward when he met them at the Bema Seat of Christ. We read in Revelation 22:12 that the Lord will render to every man according to what he has done. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapters 3 through 5 that there is a Bema Seat. It's not a judgment seat for sins because, thank the Lord, our sins were judged when Jesus took our sins on himself. But there will be a judgment in the sense of rewards given out. Individual believers will receive rewards based on how faithful you were to do what God called you to do. It was works planned long beforehand for you to do. 
Were you faithful? And I remind you, it doesn't have to be a giant thing. You know, Jesus said, whoever gave a cup of cold water to someone in my need, in need did it as for me. In those chapters in 1 Corinthians, he talks about some will be saved as by fire, uh, not bringing anyone with them, <laughs> just be getting there themselves. But Paul encourages these suffering believers that the Lord is coming quickly. And he uses this reference probably about the rapture, as that is what he's writing about in this letter. So he's encouraging, you know what? Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Keep looking for that blessed hope of Christ's return. They knew they were loved by Paul. They knew they were cherished. They knew the missionary team missed them greatly. But what eternal joy was in their future. For Paul, these believers brought him present joy and would bring him the joy when they're reunited once again with Jesus. So I didn't make it a technical assignment last week, but I did encourage you. I wonder if you, any of you did this. Did you think about his return each day since we met last week? Are you being faithful to do the work he's given you to do? And you know, whatever you do, do your work as hardly as with all your might as unto the Lord. So whether that's, you know, cleaning a toilet and doing laundry, having an opportunity to share truth with somebody, all these things we do as unto the Lord. And he is going to reward us at the Bema Seat for our faithfulness in doing what he equipped you to do and what he's called you to do. Are you being faithful to do that? Has your life influenced anyone? Um, I heard a message a while back, and I've shared this with some people. It was actually by Erwin Lutzer. And he pointed out something that was just very meaningful when he said the reason when we die we don't get our rewards immediately is because that will be a designated time when we're in glory. But we don't know the decades of rewards yet to come, even after we're gone. For the person that spoke to somebody who became a missionary here, who other people came to faith, you understand the domino effect, that's not going to be known <laughs> for a long time. So you don't get your words because you don't even know how many decades of influence that you've had on somebody is going to bring rewards in the future. It's a great thought. Let's learn from Paul to put our love and passion into the lives of people rather than things. I hope you're eagerly awaiting his return and that glorious reunion we're going to have, not only with loved ones who've gone before, but seeing Jesus face to face and then being with people and having fellowship at such a level. And people that, I, I can't wait to meet so many different people <laughs> from history and have great conversation with them. So let's live our lives today, ladies, in light of that possibility. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that we would be women who walk worthy of our calling and wouldn't blaspheme you by actions and attitudes that are totally contrary to what you've called us in holiness to be. I thank you for each lady here and their diligence to come out. I pray that um, you'll continue to open our hearts to truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, thank you, ladies.